0: The following speaker share from Meg C. was recorded on August 5th, 2021. Thanks, Gretchen, for your intro, and thanks, everybody, for being here tonight. Um, It's really cool to see some familiar faces, so um, one of my current things, it could even be our topic for all I know, is just the notion of support. And I'm learning how to trust. And I've been in the program now um, for quite a while. I'll get into that in just a second. But the idea of feeling support is very special to me. And I've had to learn it. So I've learned probably just about everything in ACA that I've needed to to navigate life, the emotional ups and downs to learn how to be grounded, to learn how to be not, I'm a kind of a dissociator, so I can't say I took things seriously, or sorry, I didn't take things personally, but I I kind of like didn't take things at all, because I had to thaw, and um, I've learned so many things in ACA, and I'm very, very grateful for recovery in ACA. Anyway, um, I've been in recovery since February of 2004, so I've been able to um, kind of remember how recovery was before the literature came out, and then how, having now the literature since 2007, 2008, how it has really catapulted my personal recovery, as well as a fellowship. And I went to a conference in 2009 in Long Beach, California, and I got to... I want to say prostrate myself in front of those that are part of the committee who actually worked on that book for 15 years, a big red book. But I did introduce myself and say how grateful I was for the literature and how wonderful it was. And um, <clears throat> anyway, I'm always grateful for all of those who worked on that particular project because that was a labor of love and I'm amazed at the big red book and how highly impactful it is and that it doesn't even repeat itself very much. So Strangely enough. Anyway, um, I thought I first would describe my life today. Um, My life today is strangely serene. And it keeps getting more serene. And sometimes it makes me a little uncomfortable because I I only work half time. I don't perform anymore. I became a performer. on classical music, you'll hear a little bit about that. I'm not a workaholic anymore. I certainly don't drink anymore. Um, I don't go out to coffee and listen to all the vicissitudes of so and so's relationship and my relationship and somebody else's relationships and conductor bash, etc., etc., etc. All of these weird things that I would do basically circumvent the idea that I had any feelings or any agency in my own life. Um, so I don't do any of that anymore. Um, and the most, the weirdest one is to not be as workaholic. I was workaholic until about 2014. So um, that's, that one's much fresher. And then also, um, ACA has guided me into, and even though I have about, what, 17 and a half years of recovery in ACA, I've noticed that I can still have pain from my recovery issues, or I should say from the, from the trauma. And I have a healthy respect for trauma today. I have a healthy respect for all people. Well, everyone does, I suppose, uh, experience trauma. But those of us who are here are here because we want to resolve that trauma. And some people don't uh, opt for that. Um, I'm grateful that I belong to a fellowship that finds that experience, strength, and hope, finds the courage and even the spirituality within um, taking a look at those times when um, things have been highly compromised and and then we go back to seeking and searching for that true self. So anyway, I feel like I'm in the right place. Um, when I first started ACA, I could finally start connecting some dots. Um, I'm pretty slow in this recovery, in this program. Um, it's ta- I need every one of the years that I've had, and I will continue to uh, work this program. I've done the steps probably five times, maybe, in small group settings. My original time was with one person who happened to be an editor for our materials. I was really proud of that, A proud. I mean, she just kind of listened, and she told me she'd forget everything. She was in her 80s, and she just said, well, you know, I'm going to forget everything. And I go, that's okay. But I still felt like I was vicariously uh, more attached to that, um, all the literature, which I so profoundly respect. Anyway, that was in the L.A. area. And um, anyway, um, it's taken me quite a while to um, feel enough of a, like I'm enough of a person in living color and breathing and physically present and present enough in my memories of the past to actually start to be able to, he- to heal some of the trauma. As I said, I'm kind of a dissociator, so I would check out. And the checking out process was for me, um, well, I would just simply go away. And um, it's been problematic in my career because I lose uh, my concentration and I can't feel my physical body very well. I get very cold, um, my heart rate kind of sinks, my auto- autonomic nervous system basically crashes. So um, it was very, very nerve-wracking. But I had no idea what was going on then, and I only now am be a- being able to, to see what that is, and only now, in the last couple of years, have been able to have enough knowledge to work with, There's a paradox coming up here. I know enough of what it is. I can experience it. And I have, I think, enough now to start to let it go. And to acquire something and taking so much time and effort to try to know what the trauma is, to process it, to process it authentically, not in a storybook dissociated way, but to process it authentically and then learn to let it go has been kind of confounding and rather difficult. And um, I've had a, like six and a half years ago or so, I had a a real live PTSD experience, which I am grateful for because I healed so many things from that. But it took about nine months to actually work it through, and with a lot of help, not just from my step group my husband, who, by the way, is Howard, he's, I see him, he's actually right in catty corner to me right now. Um, anyway, we've been together for a long time. And, um, and um, friends in the program, professional help, um, I don't, I think professional help is really important when we've had trauma. And um, I believe fellowship help's really important when we've had trauma. I think all of it is important when we've had trauma. So, um, moving a little bit, so my life today is very smooth, and it continues to be smooth, and I love the relationships that I have with fellow travelers, with friends. I love the communication I have with my husband. I am pretty detached from my family. I've always been pretty detached from my family. They are on the other coast, in other words, the west coast of the states. And um, I don't have a heck of a lot to do with them, but I feel a load of kindness towards them, my four brothers and my parents died in well, one 1971 and the other in 1993, so I had, haven't had had parents for a long time. I've had a step family. They don't usually factor too much into my story, um, but I got to see um, another classic alcoholic family in action there. Um, I identify mostly as I'm an adult child of a dysfunctional family. At times I identify as I'm an adult child I'm recovering from the disease of self-loathing. And sometimes I identify as I'm the adult child of a member of the Adams family. I have used that one, not really to get a laugh, but because we were, a, I think, kind of an eccentric family. Um, I was raised in Southern California, in Redondo Beach, California. And uh, the most superficial layer of that. Was um, my dad was a dentist, my mom was a housewife. I have four brothers, nine years older, six years older, three and a half years older, and then a twin brother. And this is in the late. I was born in the late 50s, and um, we had a nice house. We lived in a nice area, whatever that means. Um, we had the perfect Christmas photo every year. We had opulent Christmases. We had four-course meals every night with linen and silver. Um, My mom was a very perfectionistic homemaker. And my early recovery, I mostly thought that I had a grief story. And my grief story was that when I was around eight or nine, my mom was diagnosed with cancer and um, everybody pretended like it wasn't happening. And that, a couple of years later, she couldn't walk. She couldn't talk. Um, she and I, as the only girl, became a caregiver. And then, for my seventh and eighth grade years, well, she died when I was in eighth grade. Um, we didn't talk about when she died. Like there was just this amazing, amazing silence that could take place in our home. And. Um, And then I was a sad person, and a lonely person, and a lone person, and thank God I did sports in high school, because that was the one thing that kind of kept me a little bit tethered. Um, And then on the most superficial level, at 19, I fell in love with oboe playing, which is a classical musical instrument, and then I became a really good practicer, and went off to college, and... Instead of being a biology major, became a music major, and then went off to a good graduate, a good undergrad, good graduate school. Went off to Germany on scholarship, got a job in the private sector playing in an orchestra, and lived there for fourteen years, and then came back to the states, etc. So, in a way, that's like my most superficial chronology. Um, what I learned in early recovery in ACA is that. The don't tra- talk, don't trust, don't feel was the silent violence of a young person's life. Um, I could, re- I realized, and it was rather revelatory, that um, my mom's sickness and death wasn't the only thing going on. That was a shock. Uh, my oldest brother had a penchant for torture and sadism. Uh, my second oldest brother became very addicted to drugs and acted out uh, with family pets. And this is all while my mom was sick and subsequently right after she died. I have another brother who's brilliant, um, but he acted out a lot, so he just he just left pretty much as a high school kid. And then I have my twin brother and I, and somehow we were just trying to pretend like we were normal. And uh, we didn't act out. I remember making a vow to not act out when I was 12, that I would not act out. I had all this mysterious pity, really, for my dad because, oh, my dad's losing his wife. I made up a lot of stories to avoid feeling feelings. Um, I had a sense of self-esteem that was rock bottom for decades. and. My family life, because of the depth of the denial, I had a dad who was totally workaholic and hobbyaholic. And he was an interesting guy. He liked to create things and he worked, he had an MGM studio for a while before I was born and did insect photography and um, did films and considered not being a dentist. And a lot of natural history projects. He had a lot of weird animals and stuff. But the thing that was the probably the weirdest was that there was this funny elephant in the living room called my oldest brother. And I don't want to necessarily make him such the villain. Um, Somewhere along the line, something happened. And I have never had the guts to actually ask him point blank what the hell happened. I don't trust him. So I don't feel free to ask him. So I don't. And I struggled with that one for years in recovery. But I've given myself the permission and right to not ask him. Because I've learned, unfortunately, a little bit before recovery, that sometimes when I when I know a crime, I knew crimes had been committed, but I didn't know who did them all. Sure? Crimes meaning who did the pet abuse, what happened when. And I found out different people perpetrated those, not the ones that I had thought. And the burden of the truth was for me just as devastating as the actual suspicion. So so I, I give myself lots of rights today in the in the idea of that I have self-love. I've had to develop um, and I have only been able to do this through relationships that are supportive. Um, I've developed a sense of self-love. And that to me is a total miracle of ACA recovery. Total miracle. Anyway, the lot, the, all of these events. And that my, I would say the roughest time, besides zero to fifteen, sixteen, was really about eight, from eight years old to fifteen, sixteen, and the rest was all fallout from this incredible struggle for family power and this weird dynamic where nobody was talking, and Dave, my brother, would do this and that. And then he would be caught doing things, and it would happen again, and he would babysit again and again and again. didn't matter if there was blood drawn or not. It happened again and again and again. And I didn't even know that that was really that dysfunctional, except that I had terrible fear of everything. Um, I just thought, guys are jerks, or there's bullying, and blah, 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 and that's my story, and I'm going to stick with it, and it creates the artist's pathos, and aren't I glad I have this story? But I actually had no idea, until I came into ACA Recovery, how, um, how debilitating, emotionally debilitating I was. I was, uh, debilitated I was. Um, I was very isolated from my peers. And that comes from that isolation after a family member dies, no matter what age, but I was pretty young still. Um, my dad left, and um, I mean, this is a time also an era where there was a lot of drug overdose. I mean, kids were getting bludgeoned at school. It was really tough. There were, you know, I think about kids today, and, and they have a lot of that stuff that I felt that I've, I can identify a lot. Um, there was a lot of just stuff going on, and uh, we were not um, immune from that at all, and I felt like I was living a life like a reality TV show, where it was right in my face, and no recourse, no no help at all, because that's just, you just toughed it up, I toughed it out, I guess. Anyway, um, through high school, it was that I just wanted basically to, to crawl, crawl into some cave and leave, but I did find music when I was 19. I didn't have any high school experience, and that provided the structure and, in a way, kind of a a safe haven for me to be mentored by my teachers, who were wonderful. Um, I had a lot of imposter problems, tons of stage fright, but the music always kind of pulled me through. And so that kind of left a, a legacy of kind of something that is deep inside of me, is that let the love supersede the fear. That's something that music has taught me. So the love superseding the fear, I was very philosophical back then. I, liked, I loved mysticism and stuff. So that kind of carried me through. But it didn't help in relationships at all. And I was very frightened of people and of authority. I was frightened of being me in front of you. One of the cool definitions that we have around our household of intimacy is me being me in front of you. So today I'm being me in front of you, come hell or high water. Hope it's somewhat articulate. I used to be so terrified to speak in front of people that my heart would pound out of its chest. I mean, even to, I didn't, I mean, sharing at AA meetings, I first came into AA about five years before ACA. And I mean, I was a mess. I was a mess. (laughs) So this is really pretty wonderful. And you get to see it. And so hopefully it's not one big run on sentence. But um, if it is, thank you for your forgiveness. And uh, I'll try to make it as coherent as possible. But anyway, um, so I, in relationships in my early life, um, early, early adult life, they were really quite superficial, but I thought they were high drama and very intimate. Um, I had no idea what intimacy was. I thought I had very good friends, but I could always leave them. I could always go, I would move. So I would just move and just kind of zip out of their lives and never really look back. And I still have a tendency to do that, and I don't want to do that. So one of the challenges now about living in St. Pete is to not move. <laughs> it's a pretty big challenge. Uh, we've been here for 10 years, 10 years. It's as long as I've been anywhere since my, first, my second home in uh, the LA area. Anyway, um, so um, going off to Europe and all that stuff was really fun, mostly. Um, it was a very small setting in terms of the orchestra that I played in. So all of that actually was a huge, huge gift. And I can accept that today as a huge, amazing gift. And I do, and I feel just really, really blessed to have had such an opportunity. My first marriage was to an opera singer, and uh, an American opera singer. We met in the small city that I was playing the oboe in. And uh, I was with him for 14 years, and um, by the end of the first month, he was already... Uh, being very verbally abusive to me, and um, I, having had no self-esteem, thought that that sarcasm was normal, that that lack of support was completely normal, and, um, but I'm so perfect, I had this little superiority complex thing going, but I'm so perfect, and I'll do everything that he asked, everything that he'll ask, and of course he's going to change. Well, of course it did not change. And it was a very uh, sad, actually, sad relationship. And it's, it's, it's even banal to even describe it to me today because it was to, how I like to organize it in my head is that he was, it was the enactment of his of, uh, resentment being taken out on me. Very, very simple. Very, very classic. So the amazing thing was at five years sober, this is in AA, this is a couple years before ACA recovery, I made a decision to leave the relationship because I was in recovery. And after that time, when I made that quantum step with my higher powers with support from my first sponsor in AA, with support period, the power of support, of having been heard, even though I was quaking at my boots to even share about it at all, a a miracle happened and I had the strength to leave him. And at that moment, and that was in uh, the year 2000, no, 2001, things, it's almost, one time I had a dream. This was a long time before, but a dream that I was crawling up this mountain, and it was so hard. And in this dream, all of a sudden, the mountain just crushed itself before me. It leveled itself out, and I could walk ahead. And the person that I described that dream to told me, that it was a medicine dream. And that's what happened Though so many years later in 2001 because everything changed. I had to, do that at that time, I had to divorce. I quit my orchestra job, my second orchestra job in Sarasota. I quit it. The dysfunction there, I had a helper of a colleague who had it out for me just like my husband had had it out to me. He wanted to have me fired. I was getting ready to fight back. And basically I just said, you know, this isn't worth it. That to me, as a oboholic, uh, classical music person, was huge. <laughs> and I still grieve not having classical music and being a performer of it in my life every day. I still grieve that. And that's, gosh, 20 years ago. And I will always grieve that. Um, I met Howard soon after that. And um, a couple years after that, I started going to ACA meetings. He and I mid, um, had meanwhile moved out to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, I played an audition there. didn't get the job, but hey, Albuquerque looked like fun, so we decided to move there. And that was actually pretty cool. And I started a business, an online making business, and I did that for many years. Um, so anyway... Oh, I can get more now into the recovery part. The recovery part and being heard and listened to and, and feel like people get me. Unfortunately, in other 12-step programs, I always felt like I was dealing with the social competition similar to the competition I felt in my family of origin. Um, I felt there were personalities there that were really unsafe, mirroring my mom who was ice To me, she was ice cold. I am the only girl in a family of five kids. She had issues, believe me. I don't know what they are. She's a total mystery person to me. I have no venue in which to actually know, and I don't have a lot of memory. Um, And I still don't have a lot of memory, but I accept that today. Some some of them have come back a tiny little bit, but I don't have memory, and I'm okay. Um, But the the general culture of some 12-cent meetings is not safe enough for me. And I'm very particular about that, and I am very easily triggered. So for me to live beyond my triggers, to expand my own sense of self in the ACA recovery community, um, so that triggers, I, I can say, oh, that's a trigger. And I don't have to have a meltdown. I don't have to have a heightened... Um, Autonomic nervous system response. I can, I don't uh, feel horrible shame for weeks and weeks for having said for sure the wrong thing at the wrong time, reflecting a particular event when I was eight or nine that I had the subsequent PTSD episode about six and a half years ago. I can have total trust in the process today. Total, total trust that if something's going on, I can, I can trust that it's a subjective awareness, and I can always, without fail, talk to somebody about it. Um, in meetings today, I trust the steps more than I ever have. I trust the traditions more than I ever have. I understand today that not everybody is going to have recovered, so that we are all on a recovery journey. And that gives me a lot of patience. It helps me to become more patient. It helps um, me understand the broader culture that not everybody's going to be like me exactly, but just under the surface, there's so much that I have in common with others. And then that develops the, the skills of empathy, which I actually had to learn. Um, <sighs> this is a really silly little example. A year ago, maybe. I was listening, I always have to share this because I think about it so often. I was talking on my cell phone with the receiver right up here, and talking, talking, talking. And I hardly ever used a headset or anything, and I was just talking. And Howard, kind of out of the blue, goes, "Meg, do you love yourself?" And I go, "Heck yeah, of course I do." Like spontaneously, like, that's a great question, but like really, like why are you asking me that right now? And he goes, "Well, why don't you wear earplugs when you? Why don't you wear uh, earbuds when you talk on the phone?" And I thought, oh my. And the funny thing is, it's like, I always wear my earbuds now. Always. Have to. And I never would have thought of that as an act of self-love. Never in a million years. The fact that my body responds to it, like, oh yeah, the mere suggestion that I'm doing something in self-love is the lesson. So whether it be earbuds, going to a meeting, um, going through the steps again, I'm, I'm ex- I get to celebrate that. A few of my step group are here tonight, and I'm having an amazing experience with, Nine. there are nine of us in this amazing Zoom step meeting, where I am, I'm supposedly the facilitator, but I'm getting as much out of it as anybody else, and it's an amazing experience, this idea of peer contact, of contact, of this incredible heart connection. That is so healing and that I trust it implicitly. Trust it. And I can make mistakes and I trust that those are gonna be okay. And I find out that I'm not gonna die. Part of my shutdown is to keep me from feeling like I'm going to die. And um, I I don't have to do that anymore. Um, Socially, I still have a little bit of social anxiety, but I sometimes go really quiet And I accept that today, too, and I can just feel the feelings, and I don't have to force myself into going into an act or into forcing myself to say something. I used to have this chronic problem of becoming very interesting. Well, don't you know, know, I used to live in Germany for a million years, and I played an obscure instrument, and don't you know? And I had some of that stuff going on for many, many, many years. And I would tell people I'm a reed maker. I make oboe reeds, and they go, ovaries? No, 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 no. Like, what? You don't know what an ovary is? You know, it's just like the whole, all the lines. And and it's like, oh my god. And so I don't do that anymore. I mean, I guess I can. It can be entertaining, but it, do, it doesn't seem very relevant anymore. Which is such a weird thing. It is so weird. But anyway, what is relevant to me is this idea of self-love. And of course, that is going to be theme tonight, self-love, and the topic being self-love, it could be, um, if you want, if, if anyone needs any expansion on that, is how recovery is an act of self-love, and doing it as imperfectly as I know I have, um, it's still an act of self-love, and for me, self-love is that critical parent, by the way, has gone so far away in my life. Um, she used to be pretty harsh, and I used to, as I said, I had the disease of self loathing. Um, I would mime, I would verbally abuse, I would verbally assault myself habitually on every level, and I did that for years. Sometimes in front of a mirror, and I would just look at myself and just condemn myself, and I was the tribunal who was out to execute me. And I I don't know, I was very compulsive about it. And I wasn't a cutter, amazingly, and I wasn't a, I don't know, I I was so self-contained. I didn't do anything that would look weird from the outside world, but on the internal part of it, and by myself, I was mercilessly cruel to myself. So if I believe in karma and I marry a guy like my first husband, who kind of dished it out like I dished it to myself. That's a pretty concrete higher power kind of lesson, and I need a lot of help with the concrete. So it did. I see its context today, and um, my mountain that crumbled before my eyes is the relationship that I have with my spouse today, where we have um, the We have communication and heart. Communication and heart. You know, since recovery, there's been everything that's happened to me in my life, of death of a step-parent, um, change of jobs, change of, you know, d- domain, wherever that is. I mean, like, location. Um, I've had breast cancer twice and had to deal. My mom died of breast cancer, so had a lot of PTSD the first time I was uh, diagnosed, but I went immediately into therapy because I was so... Oh, my God. I mean, I was enraged and indignant. Dottie, that's 30 minutes. Thank you so much, Gretchen. Oh, she said Dottie. But anyway, thank you, Gretchen. Oh, sorry, Um, Meg. And um, so the second time it came around, I had a lot more sobriety. And um, didn't have the same um, reaction at all. In fact, I had two weeks of this incredible compassion and kind of like bliss, not knowing how long I had. That was about five years ago going on. And I decided to run soon after that. So I've been running ever since in my first marathon since 2004 is next month. (laughs) So I'm still a little compulsive, but not that bad. Um, But the self-love part is just really feeling the richness of everything life has to offer, learning how to tune out that which is toxic, learning how to embrace my fellow travelers and all basically, if I can. And uh, I'm learning to have the boundaries in place so I don't get sucked dry by accident. And I no longer sponsor 12 people at a time. I keep it down to like two, three, or four. And that's I've had to learn everything kind of the hard way, um, but it hasn't really been as hard as it could have been. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. So I'll wrap it up. The topic is self-love. And uh, I appreciate you here to listen to my story.